again, it's all about options of where we can use that capital, where we can deploy it. So if it's small capital, like something like LED lighting conversion, we would probably go after something like that. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm John Fiella, founder and editorial director of Smart Energy Decisions. If you've been enjoying these special conversations, please take three minutes to leave us a review on iTunes. As everyone knows, industrial companies have had a challenging time creating decarbonization strategies because so much of their emissions are generated from thermal loads. At our recent Distributed Energy Forum, I had the opportunity to sit down with Darren Kaiser, Global Energy Strategy Leader at General Mills, to discuss the unique challenges related to their ambitious decarbonization goals and the tactics he's employing to deliver against their sustainability commitments, such as energy optimization and CHP solutions. Let's dive right in. Here's my conversation with Darren. As everyone knows, industrial companies have had a real challenging time establishing decarbonization strategies because so much of their emissions are generated from thermal loads. So we're going to be getting into what Darren and his company are doing to achieve their very ambitious decarbonization goals during our conversation today. Uh, Darren, we've got a lot to cover, so let's kick things straight away here, and let's have you give us a brief description of your your background and your current role at General Mills. Sure. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. So as far as me, I've been now with General Mills 25 years, and the vast majority of that was as a technical leader in several of our large sites uh, across the country. And of course, we were busy making different food products, cereal and yogurt and so on. But I had the chance to also work on our utilities infrastructure at every one of the sites. So I'm very familiar with the optimization, the reliability work that goes in, you know, in the back rooms of the big factories. Then for the last three years for General Mills, I've been in this corporate engineering role with the responsibility of leading some supporting and and leading and overseeing some of that optimization work for utilities at all of our sites globally, and then also leading some broader initiatives such as wind farms, solar, things that hit in the sustainability and decarbonization area. And looking forward to the future, boy, it's never seemed as interesting or as exciting almost as it is right now. Yeah, well, one of the reasons we're we're really glad to have you here today, Darren, is that this is a return visit to the Smart Energy Decision event stage for you. You were with us at the 2019 Distributed Energy Forum, and based on the conversations we've had, there's been somewhat of a shift in the focus and and drivers concerning sustainability at General Mills. 
Can you tell us about how how things have, in fact, shifted in focus for the company over the past couple of years? Sure. First of all, I think just to your point, for a lot of businesses, energy optimization, utilities optimization was always about cost savings. That was the big driver. And, and recently for General Mills, and I think for a lot of companies, the sustainability aspects, the environmental aspects of, of that optimization work has become even more important. And, and it ties right in with the force for good pillars that General Mills really has built its business around. And I'm just going to touch on three of those, and then we're going to dive deeper into the fourth one, which has to do with the decarbonization. So again, General Mills being a food company, our, our number one pillar is food, and it's providing safe and nutritious food and making it accessible for the world. One of the interesting facts around that is that General Mills is the number one natural and organic food supplier in the U.S. Another pillar is people. Of course, we've always been a great place to work. 86% of our employees say General Mills is a great place to work. And again, I think that just comes naturally to many businesses, but particularly General Mills based in Minnesota. And then community. General Mills has always been a charitable corporate community partner. Last year, for example, we gave away $92 million to charities and 83% of our employees do some sort of volunteer activity. And then the fourth pillar is planet. And that's where in fact, I've got a slide on that that you could go to. That's where the decarbonization lives in that pillar. And I'll get into this, but it's not just energy and utilities, although that's what we're going to spend the majority of the time looking at. That's my area. But as a food company, with all of our raw ingredients coming in via agriculture, you can see there on the slide that decarbonization both happens for us in, into the future in our sustainable agriculture activities as well as our energy greenhouse gas improvement. To your question, that's how I think things are changing. It's that renewed focus on sustainability, not just to be a good corporate citizen, but literally to make the planet a better place for all of us and for our business in the future. So Darren, I'm curious, what, what brought about the change in focus and kind of who were, who were driving these changes? Tell us a little bit about how, how these changes came about. Right. And again, General Mills has been this force for good in these and worked in these areas forever. But I think the awareness of climate change, if you go back to the Paris Accord work and so on, really brought some clarity and some call to action to companies. And so I do have one more slide that I think is just fun to think about. General Mills actually changed our, our logo from General Mills making food that people love to making food that the world loves to incorporate this concept about trying to drive improvements to the climate to to the planet and specifically with climate change our products are again from the farming agriculture activities so if the if climate change creates droughts or other things that are just not good for farming then our business is at risk. You can see some of our products there. You know, there's no Wheaties without wheat. There's no uh, Cheerios without oats. No Progresso vegetable soup without vegetables. So that's the that's the concept there, and that's why we've titled uh, some of these initiatives to be built around a favorable climate for growth. Because again, we can't grow our business if we can't continue to produce agricultural products. 
Sure. That makes sense. So the focus and direction and drivers of your sustainability program are really evolving with the times. Tell us a little in detail, Darren, about how how the progress against specific goals has proceeded. What's been the progress like against your specific goals and how have the goals evolved? Right. Again, we started with an awareness around greenhouse gases. And again, I've got a slide just showing our entire global footprint in in terms of this stacked bar. And, And this is a greenhouse gas glide path that's taking us from where we are in 2021 to 2030. And the different colors in the stack bar represent the different greenhouse gas contributions from the different aspects of our supply chain, with you can see agriculture being more than half of our greenhouse gas footprint. And what we're going to focus on, because this is energy related, and that's the area that I'm working on, is the orange component, which is which is relatively small, it's about 10%, but we feel it's very actionable. And and it is one of the areas you can get after with the decarbonization around energy, for example. The next slide that I have, which continues to show this glide path, is now just looking at our global energy. It's electricity and it's natural gas. And you can see in terms of how it's evolved, we started measuring this back in a fiscal 10 baseline and you can and that's that first bar on the left and you can see the huge improvements that have been made in our first 10 years till we get to our new baseline for our new ambitions which is F20 we're trying to improve our entire footprint 30% by 2030 but specifically energy and utilities because again we feel it's more actionable we're trying to improve that at least 40%. And the good news is that through our US wind farms, we've already got line of sight to where we are 100% RE100 in the US as of this year. And globally, we're at 90% renewable electricity. And uh, you can see also that we're already via those wind farm VPPAs achieving our 30 by 30 objective here already in 2022, uh, fiscal 22, sorry, 2021. So what's remaining for us now, which is really the rest of this uh, discussion, is what do we do about the scope one greenhouse gas, which you can see in the stack bar is the orange. That's the contribution from our scope one direct burn of natural gas, which is significant for us. And long-term by 2050, we want to be net zero carbon. So we still need to, we haven't, well, there's no finish line really until we're net zero. So that's really, uh, I think, what, what we're set to discuss over the next 10 minutes here. Yeah. So that's an interesting example, Darren, because you were, when targets were focused on renewable energy for electricity, your work would essentially be done. But now that the goalpost has moved to decarbonization, you you still have a lot of work to do. I find using 2020 as a baseline to be unusual. Not many companies are using 2020 as a, as a revised baseline. As a manufacturer, how did COVID affect your business in 2020? Well, because we're supplying food and and the majority of our of our sales are food for at-home eating through grocery stores, the fact that restaurants had experienced 
the drop in in business actually helped us for an interim period of time. So when you look at our fiscal year and the months that it lands in, we actually for the fiscal 2020 for us uh, for our baseline was a few percentage points higher in terms of overall usage than we would have maybe expected had there not been you know any lockdowns. So not quite flat, slightly up a, a couple percentage points. So we felt like the 2020 still still made sense for us as a as a baseline. Okay. You've got this ambitious 2050 net zero goal. What about the efficiency beast? Tell us about how energy optimization efforts are factoring into your your plans and what's the trend there? So 80% of our energy use is in the US. And we've been partnering with the Department of Energy and its Better Plants program since 2012. That was when we made our first challenge goal objective. And it was a 10-year objective. It was supposed to be 20% improvement by, by 2022. Well, in 2018, we had already achieved that. So in our largest sites in the US, we had already experienced a 20% improvement, which was great through optimization. We've worked with the DOE to set now a new challenge goal based again in with fiscal 20, trying to get another 20% of optimization improvement by 2030. That is exactly the right type of work that, that everybody wants to do because not only does it have the great sustainability impact, but it directly reduces your operating costs. So yes, we're going to continue to work through all those optimization strategies, and we're going to be targeting this ongoing two to three percentage points efficiency improvement every year with the objective of a full 20% by, by 2030. And I'll tell you what, for us, I mean, that's a, we spend about $100 million a year all in on utilities. So mm -hmm. that's material. I mean, if we can take <laughs> over the course of that 10 years, if we can take $20 million out of our operating costs. That's great. Yeah. How about electrification of, of assets? I mean, right. based on our prior conversations, it sounds like you've decided really not to go in that direction. What were what were some of the factors you weighed in arriving at that conclusion? So of our scope one, natural gas burn, 80% of that is in eight large thermal-based plants. It's our large cereal plants and pet food and soup where we're cooking and we're drying. And it's just, it, it's massive. If you take any one of our big cereal plants, like Cedar Rapids, Iowa, for example, might be a 20 megawatt load right now. The thermal load in gigajoules is actually more than double that. So if I was now to electrify everything that I'm, the dryers and boilers and cookers that we're using natural gas on, and we now electrified it, now it'd be more than a 60 megawatt electrical load. So you just have those logistics. And then you say, well, if some of that power is being generated at some power plant that's coal or natural gas, have I really made any net impact in, in decarbonization by doing that? Right. And the answer is no, not really, because at a power plant down the road, We've got the transmission losses. We've got, they don't make use of the waste energy. So the 
the burning of natural gas directly in a in an oven, for example, is, is very efficient. So we don't want to do things that just are monumental in terms of cost, of course, and logistics, but then in the end that don't really help the environment. And we have the product identity aspects of some of our products like Again, Wheaties, they have a unique toasted flavor from being toasted in a natural gas oven. Yeah, interesting. So electrification isn't going to work for you based on the profile and nature of your load, but you've got these heavy thermal plants. And I guess you've also been considering CHP to to meet the needs of these heavy thermal plants. What have been some of the challenges and roadblocks that that you have faced and, you know, maybe even address some of the potential solutions that you see there. Right. Well, again, the reason that we're very interested in CHP is because at our thermal plants, you could be making power that we need anyway, right on site with, especially in the U.S., with abundant, really cheap natural gas. And then you can make use of that waste heat directly into our steam processes and it directly then offsets the natural gas that we have to burn. So all of that, just the physics of it, the energy efficiency of it really makes sense. And and that's why we're very interested in it. Our plants would make a good host for for CHP. Some of the roadblocks have been, that's a big capital investment. And does it have the payback? And it really doesn't have a high enough payback to attract our own internal capital because we have other options, growth, more growth options that where we can spend and deploy our capital. So that's been a reason not to do it. The uh, fact that it's based in fossil is another area of concern. Again, great efficiency, but is it long-term the right thing to do if the power grid becomes all renewable, for example? But uh, I do have a slide on that that shows the, how CHP does compare in terms of just total decarbonization. If you compared a 15 megawatt CHP with 15 megawatt solar or wind over the course of time, that CHP system, it runs every day or it runs when, when you need it versus having to wait for sun or wind, which is great, of course. But then because of that, over the course of time, it actually would, would drive more decarbonization than in, in today's environment than either of those others for the same megawatt design. So I think that's compelling and it, and it has us, it continues to be of interest to it. And then the other enabler are a lot of these third-party solution providers that can provide, that would come in with their money, their engineering, their expertise. They would fund and operate and and basically again we are a host but there's enough economics there that it could even though it's it's doesn't match our internal hurdle rates where it can be attractive at some of our sites for these third parties so we're continuing to explore that and i do think that's something that has a good potential for us at several sites very interesting so chp is going to play a part in the roadmap. It's not a panacea. You've got some capital issues. You're thinking about energy as a service financial models. Let's let's dig into that a little deeper. Tell us about the, the decision process that kind of you go through in evaluating the route of using a third-party energy as a service program versus using your own capital. 
again, it's all about options of where we can use that capital, where we can deploy it. So if the return isn't that high and it's a lot of capital, we're not going to be interested in it. If it's small capital, like something like LED lighting conversion, we would probably go after something like that, especially if it's got both a positive cash flow IRR and positive for the environment. So again, those would be some of our considerations. I think that some of these third parties with capital being cheaper and the third parties becoming more sophisticated and developing more of a portfolio of of successful projects, I do th- I do see that as a as a future solution for for our industry. Super. Well, yeah. I, I mean, we're we're very bullish on energy as a service as a business model innovation that will allow deployment of kind of proven clean tech technologies that can help companies achieve their decarbonization goals. Well, this has been a great review of what's going on now at at General Mills. Maybe we could close by having you tell us a little bit about what's next. Give Give us some thoughts about what's next for General Mills. Right. I think we've hit on most of them, you know, continue the optimization work with using the Department of Energy's types of modeling and and partnership, continue to look at renewables to expand for us our RE100 internationally, where we haven't gotten to 100% yet. And that could be solar, it could also be purchase of RECs. And again, 2030, we're going to have that solved, we will be at RE100 by 2030. And I think we talked a lot about the CHP. I think we will be continuing to explore that, hopefully piloting it at at some sites and then hopefully expanding that to others, assuming it's successful. And then finally, I think monitoring what is just happening in both in future changes with both technology and then maybe government incentives and see what direction, you know, there might be extra funding or extra incentives that don't exist today. You've been busy the last two years. It sounds like you're going to be busy the next two years. Thanks again to Darren for joining us today. We look forward to continuing to follow his great work at General Mills. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for listening to the podcast and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed this episode, Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn about how you can become a part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're honored to have the opportunity to share conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Darren in this podcast, on our website, and at our events all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter, Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.